Morena and welcome to Victoria Young. Hiya. Victoria is Business Desk's Investigations Editor. She's in the Tamaki Makoto Auckland studio. Thank you for that. Now, corporate fraud, what is a case that you want to draw attention to, please? Well, this is definitely one of the big ones. Uh, CBL Corporation collapsed in 2017. It was worth at $1.747 million. That was its market cap at one point on the NZX. So there have been court case after court case after court case on this one. But um, this was the only criminal case um, that was taken against um, two of the main executives involved and two not guilty verdicts um, delivered last week. The two main people involved, uh, all that were charged, um, I guess, and went through this trial, Peter Harris, the managing director, and the CFO, Cardin Maholland. All right. In a nutshell, what happened? So after this company collapsed, um, the SFO accused these two of, there were sort of two sets of charges, um, one relating to a transaction in Samoa and the second set of charges, which is really sort of the interesting bit we should talk about today, was a breach of, well, it was a it was alleged to be a crime to breach what the RBNZ told it to do, the Reserve Bank acting as um, sort of in its other capacity that we don't hear about as much as the regulator of insurers. Okay, and um, what does the judgment say about its role? Well, it's really interesting. So as the regulator of insurers, uh, RBNZ could do these things under IPSA, which is the Insurance Prudential Supervisory Act. They can tell insurance companies what to do and not to do if they think um, there's risk, basically. Um, and in this case, they thought that... Um, CBL Corporation wasn't well capitalised and, you know, people people could miss out, their consumer could miss out, or the policyholders could miss out. So what they did was they um, they issued four directions, actually, and basically what came out in the trial was that even though the RBNZ um, issued these four directions, um, the judge found that the regulator didn't do this correctly. So it's like... It's, it's it's almost like you know a police officer pulls you over for speeding, but but you don't think you're speeding. Do you, do you go with what the police officer tells you what to do, or you know do you dispute the fact that you were were speeding in the first place? It's it's, it's kind of like no, that. No, I understand it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could have faulty equipment or something else, but the bottom line is police have to follow procedures um, in in order to make sure that a uh, a case isn't thrown out. And was there an issue with the way procedures were followed? By the Reserve Bank, yeah, and the judge found this on on, on all four directions. I mean, goodness, the, yeah, the, yeah. So, so now the question is, what was going on at the Reserve Bank? And you know, this is the doubt that you know the very good legal team, uh, you know, Rachel Reed KC raised in in the judge's mind. You know, she brought, you know, they grilled the RBNZ guys, the regulators that were making the decisions at the time, and you know, they made these suggestions that they weren't experienced enough in insurance to actually issue these directions so if you can't even get over the hurdle that you know the directions are uh, legitimate or issued correctly then you can't even go ahead and prove that they were breached and then you know knowingly breached and all the other things so this really fell over quite quite early what about the SFO 
and, and its role and how it laid the charges. Yeah, that's interesting too. So the way the SFO laid the charges is also, you know, people are talking about this basically because so what they did was they used the Crimes Act um, and so for the Crimes Act offence, which was Section uh, 220, theft in a special relationship, the penalty for that is seven years max jail time. Um, but they couldn't, they couldn't prove that anyway. But they, what they could have also done is they could have used the Insurance Prudential Supervisory Act. They could have used IPSA, but they didn't lay, and you presume the reason they didn't lay the charge in that one is because the penalty is... Um, softer, you know, the, it's a fine of 200k or jail time of only three months. So there is a question, you know, going around, especially in legal circles, as to, you know, what happened here. You know, why not charge under both or what? You know, you know, because basically, um, the regulator has missed out. Can we just get a little bit more detail over what the allegations were? So basically, these guys when they were allegedly poorly capitalised, they were breaching the directions that the RBNZ stated. And they were sort of directions like, don't don't do any transactions. So some of it, like, it's in the sort of, in the evidence there, there were banking transactions that these guys, and there's emails um, saying, you know, we authorise doing this. Uh, we need to do this. We need to complete this acquisition. And they just sort of... Um, business as usual and some of the doubt that they raised was like oh well we're doing this because it's business as usual it's not part of this direction um you know but eventually you know what happened with this company and where the sort of questions will lay eventually um you know because there is public investors involved is how the reserve bank acted and the way that it you know because it was it was the reserve bank that um put this into liquidation now let's let's just discuss that side again. You mentioned it. We we so often talk about the Reserve Bank it's, as the um, you know the, the the controller of monetary policy, the controller of the monetary money supply, right? And, and therefore, in many ways, the controller of monetary policy and hiking interest rates up and down. Um, it's another clear, clear brief is regulation, as you said, and that's more than quite high level, um, as we're seeing here. This is also right down to the level of being able to uh, to make an order like this. How common how commonly does that happen? Is there a question about this just being an anomaly in terms of the way it unfolded, or is there a wider question about capacity or just decision-making? Yeah, you're right about this, because this is the first time we've seen this sort of thing. And, you know, the RBNZ, they've got this huge, huge remit. I mean, if you look at, like, you know, the banking stuff that they're doing now, that's the big banks and the tiny little, you know, um, deposit takers down the under the scale. So actually, it's got a wide remit that people sort of don't even realise. And the other interesting thing about this case is that the RBNZ is obviously heavily involved before it transfers the case to the SFO. You know, if you look at some of the other fraud cases that, um, you know, we've talked about um, on the show before, you know, electoral fraud, that's kind of like somebody complains to the Electoral Commission and then it might go to police and then get transferred to the SFO. Whereas in this case, the RBNZ is heavily sort of in the mix here. And it's, it, it, I mean, I, I don't know if we can or we will ever see you know who was really driving this case for for the SFO, but um, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. All right, and the what happens next is well, basically we have to wait for an 
to see if the SFO appeals. This new, relatively new um, SFO director, Karen Chang, she's already become quite strident. You know, we saw her appealing one of the earlier um, electoral donations cases. She made a strong statement um, when this decision came out. And she even sort of, you know, referred to the fact, I mean, I think we've talked before about how the SFO's um, measurements have changed. She's she's saying to the market, I guess, we're taking these big cases anyway. We might not get them all, but we've changed the way that we think about these sorts of things. We still want to go after these guys. What I find really interesting as well now, especially with Peter Harris, who's quite an interesting character, I guess you could say, as, as a businessman, a lot of sort of fund managers will know what we're talking about like he's quite quirky and he's been very strident especially when the original charges came out and the subsequent law cases you know that that he was at he was in the wrong uh, he was not in the wrong obviously and now that's been proven and the reserve bank is to blame and he's got this lawyer Rachel Reed who is a very successful uh, criminal lawyer and she's done a couple of previous cases where she's actually gotten compensation for her defendants after they've been proved not guilty so, you know, there was a big one, I think it was just a year ago, finance company directors that went through a huge process with the um, FMA. I mean, this was a terrible one that was actually, <laughs> it's sort of known in the FMA as, as, the, as the example of what not to do because um, this was the Viaduct Capital case where it was, it went to trial and it had to be retried because of bad sort of accounting evidence and the management of it. So we're talking like two 10-week trials. And then the directors that were eventually acquitted, they got compensation. So a guy like Peter Harris, who, you know, previously was this high-flying um, company uh, managing director, you know, who, who had to go through this 12, maybe 10-week court process, um, you know, just sort of having had a bit to do with him and knowing him, you know, he's obviously, it's a big fall from grace. You see him sort of sitting there with his little lunchbox of sandwiches and you know life has completely changed for this guy because he's been through the ringer. What he could do next once we figure out whether there's an appeal or not, um, you know, could be to, to take, take on the regular. It really remains to be seen. Goodness, what an interesting case. Thank you. Now, the business of blowouts. I think we've done interviews on this too. Why is it that infrastructure projects always blow out? Um, yeah. And we can all speculate, but what's the sort of the the science behind it, I guess? Or what have you learned? Yeah, yeah, we've definitely learned a lot doing this project because, um, you know, it took a while to decide on which projects were inter- interesting, whether we needed to do ones that were finished, not finished. But we ended up taking 55 major projects in New Zealand, ones that have been completed and you know to understand this we basically dug around and looked at the first costings and the final costings of 55 major projects in New Zealand and it's probably no surprise that 40 of these came in over budget Um, 12 were on budget and three were under budget and the average blowout was 56 million dollars so yeah I mean you you have probably done interviews on this before but it's still quite fascinating when you think of the actual figures. Well, it's this multiple things. It's the bidding process at the outset. Everyone's trying to compete to get the job, and you know, often public or private, particularly public sector um, um, funders are, are, are looking at trying to get the best deal. And they're, they're, we know from the past, for some major blowouts, they're often just unrealistic. If you look at inflation costs we've experienced, supply chain issues, all these kinds of things. But um, 
you know, the, the frequency and the magnitude, is there a sense that is on the rise, Victoria? Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. The other thing, interesting thing about it is the psychology of it because, as we can see, we know things blow out, but there's also a sense of uh, – People think their project won't blow out. You know that. Like that oh, we that, all do that. that that's that called it. Won't happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the exception, and that's what we we find um, when we talk to people. Do you We're know not- what it is? Though that's really interesting. When you really want to do something or make something happen, you're always excessively optimistic about what it will take, aren't you? Uh, and, and that's where that kind of human fallibility needs to be checked by some kinds of systems. If someone says you can't build this because you don't have enough money, we all run around, you know, people will always run around trying to imagine a way they might have enough money, right? But you need robust symptoms, uh, systems rather to try and train that in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And interesting what is publicly disclosed as well because – you know, we thought it would be easy to find the business cases for a lot of these projects, but often it's just sort of an announced figure um, from a politician. You know, at the very, at the very start, and we were like, "Oh, is this really what we're going to use?" But you know, if that's what's announced to the public, then I guess there's an expectation that that's what, what it's going to be. You know, the doozy is estimated. something like the investigation into the pumped hydro scheme, isn't it, that I think the last figure I saw, did it, I can't remember how many billion it started at. Help me, Jacob. I know you're a train spotter. It's t- <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. $4.6 billion. Now it's $15.6 billion and we still haven't even got to an actual sort of solid proposal yet, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, the other thing is, is, do you think there's any link to the low interest rates of recent years and... Um, and in, in the, in the, just talking about monetary poss- policy, the loose monetary policy of recent years, is that a factor that everyone's just gone and spent willy-nilly and then come up against the constraints and the inflation? Maybe. It's hard to say because because the, a lot of the projects we covered uh, were already they completed. Were by the t- yes, mm. Yeah, also, also they're actually a little bit sort of further back in time than... Than that, so uh, yeah, it's interesting to see that the other trend that we did pick up on, though, is that you know roads are the worst. You know, we looked at you know uh, solar, we looked at uh, health infrastructure, we looked at um, all sorts of different types, but roads are definitely the worst. And there's so many different um, reasons why, really. I'm trying to think of that final of that interview we did a while ago, and the final issue was simply the skill set of people doing these estimates, right? Mm. Uh, And, you know, you're talking about complex engineering projects at various times. You've got circumstances that are always going to come into play. The old rule of thumb was always add 20% to your home renovations plan. Um, Maybe with these projects, it's more like add 50%. Yeah, yeah. And then the big, the big, uh, the one that, (laughs) the category that blew out the blowouts was roads. Roads Mm. really, you know, they really... um, I think, oh God, I think it was almost half the projects, you know, they're the ones that really blow out. And the problem with that, you know, when we talk to people is, you know, materials, uh, you know, aggregate, vitamin. But the other thing is the politics of it all. I mean, roads are highly, highly politicised, right? It's a, it's a huge issue. So there's no – it is hard to have a pipeline, um, especially when you compare with Australia where, you know, the parties are sort of – closer together on what should be built and and prioritising certain projects. That's been called for by the industry for so long, for so many years, that Mm. infrastructure Mm. pipeline. And I think 
the Infrastructure Commission or someone may have, you know, an idea of paperwork on it. But but then you have, you know, um, someone proposing a second harbour crossing and got their details and someone just says, no, we're not doing that and we're not having a walking bridge over the harbour. And uh, you're, you're right. It would be good to get some kind of logical consensus over mm, that. Mm, and the reason mm. the industries tell us is part of these cost blowouts is all of a sudden the pipeline runs out and everyone goes to Australia or the United States or wherever else they can get work and then you're back yep. into delays yep. and round and yep. round it goes. Yep. Yep. And it leads to the other problem. If there's more uncertainty here, businesses don't like operating here and that's why when you when you look at the tenders, we did we looked at, you know, who's winning these tenders of the major projects. We tried to figure out, you know, which construction firm or, you know, which engineering firms um, sort of contribute to the worst blowouts, but we couldn't, the limited set of data, we couldn't really say um, in a fair way. But, you know, there are often, you know, these projects, there's only two, three or four four people around. A lot of them are over- Australian-owned companies anyway. Um, you know, if if you, ca- you can't get a good price, if you can't compete as well. Why, so. is the, why is the information so hard to get, particularly on pu- projects with public funding in them? Yeah, we were quite surprised how it's sort of, I don't, I don't know, it's sort of disclosed in, a, in, a, in an initial announcement. But if you try and dig back deeper, there's ah. there's not a lot there's not a lot there. Or we're relying on it's a lot of economist research that, that you know these guys have sort of dug up um, what's there. But otherwise, yeah, you'd 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 be surprised about how much isn't released. What is it that old saying about what gets measured gets done or whatever? Um, and, and you wonder if this is part of the loose discipline in some ways, if there was much more public reporting every step of the way. Um, yeah. yeah, that would be great if there was a database of it, isn't it? Oh, it would be great as a database of lots of things, and if, <laughs> if public yeah. officials would release the information on it. Finally, mm. Sinlay's result, how is it faring? Yeah, it's, uh, it's looking grim. I mean, these guys have been thrashed all year, you know. They've had problems, they've had lots of different things, you, you know, coming up. So it's like... They've posted this loss. So what is it? Uh, $4.3 million loss uh, compared with a net profit of almost $40 million. So it's pretty stark. Um, although sort of priced in by the market, you know, people were expecting this. They downgraded several, several times. Um, so what they need to do really is slash, slash a lot of debt. Um, so that's going to be quite an interesting prospect in the next 12 months or so. Any information as to what's driving it? Um, well, I mean, a, a lot of inflation. You know, it, you know, it, it's it's a milk processor, so it's it's the materials that that hurt it, and also this dairy works thing that it bought. Uh, Two thousand nineteen, it bought it, and now it needs to offload it five years later. You know, it says it's not core. You know, so maybe it's a distraction, but it's really got a. Um, it's really got to change if it's going to, you know, have the um, confidence of investors. And what's its projections for 2024, by the way? Um, I'm not sure I actually have that to hand. Not, not dollars and cents, but what's it saying about the market going forward? It's saying that it's still going to be tough, but I think, you know, what you know, it's really focused on this plan to, to, sell, to sell down debts and look for customers in different ways. It's had this terrible... Well, not terrible, but it's had this relationship with A2 Milk, um, which was which accounted for a third of its revenue, which has been cancelled. Um, basically, A2, I think, wants to control more of its own supply. So, you know, that's another sort of headwind for them. Uh, yeah, so that's the that's the that's the difficult year ahead for them. Victoria, thank you so much as always. Victoria thank Young, you. business desk investigations editor, speaking to us in our Auckland studio, and thanks for that too.